Welcome to church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Pete, and uh, I'm the lead pastor of uh, Southwest Evangelical Church, so it's really great um, to be here. I'm often at uh, our Bankstown campus, um, but I'm sure you're very well looked after by Pastor Marshall. Um, I don't know uh, how you feel about uh, your holiday photos kind of periodically coming up on your feed. You know, when you have that on either Google or Facebook or whatever, Instagram, and it's just like where you were like two years ago, three years ago, and the, the holiday photos that you had and the, the really nice places you've been to. I got to admit, I have a love-hate relationship with those photos when they come up. I mean, obviously, I love that they've, you know, reminded me of the holiday, but honestly, I always feel a bit depressed when they come up. So, for example, um, we went to New Zealand over summer, and that's actually the view from the balcony of the house we were staying at. And I've tried not to look at that because it actually makes me a little bit depressed. I wonder how you deal with the post-vacation blues. It's actually a thing. You can go and get therapy for post-vacation blues. It's actually a thing. Um, How do you deal with ordinary life after you've had a really, really great holiday or a really good time or any part of your life that feels like a high? How do you deal with the normal stuff? And I reckon it's the same with our spiritual lives, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. How do you deal with a spiritual high and what comes afterwards? Um, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news, but in Asbury University in Kentucky, like no one knows anything about Kentucky in the US except for what? Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? KFC is the only thing Kentucky is famous for. Well, for the last 16 days, there's been an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a revival, and it, it seems like from reports, it's pretty genuine. Now, they've only just wrapped it up after 16 days. Tens of thousands of people have come, and they're just sending them home because they've got to get, a, you know, get on with normal university life. How do you recover after such a high? 16 days. Or when I was uh, young at, at church, and I did go to like... Um, a youth camp or a church camp or a conference or a mission trip, like the short-term mission that um, these guys are going on. And it was always really hard afterwards because you have this huge spiritual high and then you've got to return to the ordinary mundane life. I wonder how you deal with that. You know, the life in between. Well, Matthew chapter 17 actually shows us because what we read earlier, we see both the mountaintop and literally a mountaintop And the mundane, don't we? Uh, Now, mundane, often we think mundane means unexciting, uninteresting. But actually, the, the word mundane literally means world, right? So the opposite of mundane isn't exciting. The opposite of mundane is actually spiritual, heavenly. It's the contrast between the heavenly, the spiritual, and the worldly. Well, you know what? Jesus, in this chapter, he comes down from the mountaintop into the mundane. And because he does that, he actually helps us make sense of both the heavenly and the earthly. And we'll actually find out that the mountains are in fact for the mundane, and it's actually the valleys that make sense of the mountaintops. I think it'll help all of us no matter where we're at. Let's pray and get into it. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we hear Jesus' words today, Holy Spirit, we invite you and ask you to speak to all of us, regardless of whether we're still seeking or we're in relationship with you, whether we're feeling encouraged or discouraged, whether we feel like we've been on a mountaintop or we just feel like the mundane's a drag. Father, regardless of where we are, thank you that Jesus is there to meet us. Help him to teach us. Amen. Uh, Just a quick uh, 
recap, remember we're coming back to the book of Matthew between now and, and Easter. Matthew's made up of five segments. They're all action followed by teaching. Now we're in the uh, fourth action segment. That's where we are. Um, and there was a key turning point last week. You remember Pastor Marshall preached from chapter 16. Peter actually confesses in public, well, at least in front of Jesus, who he is, that he is the Son of God. And then straight afterwards, Jesus makes the first of his predictions that what it meant for him to be the Messiah was to suffer and die. Now, at the end of chapter 16, we read these verses. I don't have to turn to it, but the last verse of chapter 16, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man, that's talking about himself, coming in his kingdom. And then this chapter that we're up to, straight away in Matthew 17, Jesus takes his three disciples up to the mountain. And there, as we read, he is transfigured. He is metamorphosized. He's changed. And they see his glory. And it's not just him, but he's there with two colossal Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah, which actually pretty much represent the whole of the Old Testament. You know, often we say the Old Testament is the law and the prophets. Well, Moses represents the law, and Elijah is kind of the chief of the prophets. And then you've got this glory cloud, which is sometimes called the Shekinah glory. And then there's a voice from heaven. Now, after that last verse in chapter 16, you know, these disciples must be thinking, oh, is it now coming true? Is the Son of Man coming into his kingdom? Is this what's going on? Well, we're going to have a look at what happens. Now, the key to understanding uh, chapter 17 and Jesus is what we call the transfiguration is to see that it actually refers back to another mountaintop experience. You see, some TV series, as you know, are like sitcoms. You know sitcoms? Like, you can drop in and watch any episode, like The Simpsons, who've been going on for like 35 years, and it doesn't really matter. You just kind of have some familiarity with the characters. You can drop in at season 15 or season 3 and kind of get what's going on. But then other shows, as you know, like K-dramas, right? You can't pick up on, on, on episode 8. You don't understand what's going on because there's background to it. Well, I hate to say this, but the Bible is a bit like K-drama, okay? It's not like a sitcom. It's like K-drama in that you need to know what's going on. So let me show you um, quite a few quotes from the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and see if you can notice the parallels between Matthew 17 and Exodus. So the first one, Exodus 24, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, you are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. A few verses later, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Skip ahead to chapter 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. 
I wonder if you picked up some parallels. Let me just list them for you. Uh, Obviously, the setting is on a mountain, different mountain, but it's on a mountain. There's also that seventh day reference, right? You wait six days, you go up on the seventh. We read that in Matthew as well. Moses had three companions, particularly that are named with him, though they don't kind of go up all the way with him. But Jesus had three companions. You've got the shining face of both Moses and Jesus. You've got the glory cloud as the kind of presence of God, or what we call a theophany, all right? We've got the reaction of fear. And of course, Moses is actually up there, both in Exodus as well as Matthew 17, the transfiguration. You see all these parallels. Now, what's the point? All right, the point is this. With Moses and that first mountain in Mount Sinai, that was actually a key turning point in God's relationship with his people. This is where the Ten Commandments were given. This is where the covenant relationship was established with God's Old Testament people Israel. This is the beginning of what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament is another word for covenant. So that was a turning point. So here you see the parallels are trying to get at something as well, right? Jesus is now the new Moses. We have another key turning point in God's relationship with people. And now we have a new leader, a new prophet, a new covenant. But if that were all, it would not be enough because it's not just Moses that Matthew's making the point. It's actually Moses plus, all right? Because we've got to notice the differences, not just the similarities. See, Matthew 17 goes a lot further. Firstly, notice when Jesus is transfigured, it's not just his face, but it's his clothes. Verse 2, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. Now, I wonder why that is. It could be, I reckon the, the reason is because... Remember, when Moses' face shone, we read in Exodus, because he was basking in God's glory and he reflected God's glory. It was a reflected glory that was coming off the face of Moses. Whereas Jesus' face and clothes shone because he himself was glorious. Right? Glory actually came from him. That's how much better he is than Moses. And then next, I remember that the voice from heaven in Matthew 17 says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, the first part of that was actually almost exactly word for word what we heard, what what people will have heard at Jesus' baptism. God says it again. But what's really interesting is the listen to him. Because who was Jesus with? Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah. And remember, these two represent the two greatest. The law, the prophets, basically the Old Testament. All right? That's what they represented. Moses and Elijah. And yet the voice says, listen to Jesus. Yeah? You see the significance of that? This is my son. Listen to him. He is greater. Then the law and the prophets, um, we've been doing Hebrews, and we'll come back to Hebrews this year, all about how the son is greater than the servants. That's what Moses and Elijah are. They're great, but they're only servants. The son is so much greater. And so listen to him. God's greatest, most complete, and most important revelation has come. Now, I just want to pause here and speak to you, especially if you are on a spiritual journey and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You know, the best thing you can do is not necessarily, I mean, we've been running Alpha, and it's been great. But you know what? The whole point of Alpha is 
We want you to meet Jesus. And so the best thing you can do, I mean, come to Alpha for sure. Um, we're kind of a bit full this year, uh, this time around. We'll have it again in a couple of months' time. But you don't need to wait for Alpha. You don't need to wait. Just pick up a Bible. And if you don't have one, we'll give you one that's for free. And read about Jesus. Go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in the New Testament. Meet Jesus. You don't know how many people have come to relationship with Jesus, have had their doubts answered, or at least they don't become an obstacle to faith because they've met Jesus. You just need to listen to Jesus. Sometimes you look around the world and you think, oh, you know, the church is like this and Christians are bad. And, and yeah, there's a lot of things that we're responsible for. And there's a lot of stuff about religion that you might be confused with, right? Just for a moment, right? If this is true, then you just need to listen to Jesus. Meet him. Not that those things are unimportant, but go right to the source. Go right to the core of what makes Christianity believable for billions of people around the world. It's Jesus. So if you're still on a spiritual journey, why don't you do that? Meet Jesus. And if you're like, oh, I don't know how to do that on my own, come talk to me. I'm, so, I'm sure there'll be lots of people here who'll be like, yeah, I'll read the Bible with you. Let's meet him together, all right? Listen to my son. That's the second big one. And then thirdly, the disciples see Jesus' glory, they hear his voice, and like anyone in the presence of God, they're terrified, right? They fall down in terror, which happened in Moses' day. At the foot of the mountain, God's people feared for their lives. What happens when you meet God? And for their sake, God in Exodus kept them at a distance. But yet, yet what do you see here happen? The disciples fall down in fear, but verse 7, Jesus came to them, and then he touched them. He says, get up. Don't be afraid. All right, in the Old Covenant, in Exodus, if any man, animal, anyone touched the mountain, they would die instantly because the glory was too overwhelming. They were too sinful. Here, we've got the actual Son of God, glorious, and He reaches down to touch them, and they not only do not die, He raises them up on their feet, which shows you how different this new covenant is. In the new covenant, there will be no more fear, no more distance, no more running away from the Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been feeling distant, guilty, afraid, maybe because you've been carrying burdens, maybe because of unconfessed sin, maybe because of things that you're struggling with, what Jesus is saying to you, you're not in the old covenant where you need to be burdened by guilt and shame. Even just today, what do we do? After we sang the first couple of songs, we came in confession in the new covenant, God is only as far away as a prayer of, Lord, I'm sorry. And no matter how many times you've said that and asked that, he's still there, all right? That's what the new covenant is like. Don't be afraid. Jesus raises you on your feet. And the last of all, it must have been super special. Peter and the other two disciples, I mean, of all the disciples, they were there to witness Jesus' glory, God's glory. They even hung out with Moses and Elijah. That's pretty cool. No wonder Peter wanted to stay there. See, verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, that word for shelter is also the word tabernacle, which if you're familiar with the Bible is actually a pretty significant word. It means tent. But then in Exodus and in the story of Israel in the desert, it was especially used tabernacle. Uh, that's the word for the desert temple. That was what it was, the tabernacle. In the Exodus, 
Later in the promised land, God made his glory, his presence localized, firstly in the tabernacle in the desert, but then later on in the temple in Jerusalem. And that was a way for God's people to come to him, continue to experience him in their midst. It was a way to contain the glory of God so that he could be at one place so that his people meet him. Now, Peter, when he says, let's build some tabernacles, what is he trying to do? You get what he's trying to do, right? He, he, he wants to keep God's glory around. He wanted to stay in the moment. He wanted to be on the mountaintop forever. He wanted to have this glory stay with them, accessible, contained here on the mountain. Maybe he thought, hey, this is maybe the place for the new kingdom that Jesus promised. We're going to launch from here. Here's where it's going to start. But of course, Peter was wrong. Why? I mean, Jesus doesn't even reply for his request, does he? He was wrong. Jesus doesn't want him to build tabernacles. He doesn't want it to stay there. He doesn't want the glory to be contained there. Because as far as Jesus was concerned, the mountaintop experience was not an end in itself. They had to come down from the mountain. And in fact, we won't cover these verses again. When they did in verses 9 to 12, what was Jesus immediately talking about? He's immediately going to talk about his upcoming death. All right? They wanted to stay in glory. Jesus says, no, no, no. Is going to be death before we come back to glory. Because for Jesus, and actually I'll suggest for us, the mountain is to prepare him and prepare his disciples for the valley to come. There's no glory without suffering first. And that's true of Jesus as well as Jesus' followers in this world. So they come down from the mountain and second point. And verse 14, you see there? When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He seizures and he's suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into water. I don't know if you've ever witnessed a family with a chronically ill child. I have a pastor friend. His child was born, his third, his third child. He's now four years old. He was born with Down syndrome. And so already pretty challenging. Last year, got COVID, then got pneumonia. They took him to the hospital. After they checked him out for pneumonia, they said, um, you've got to come back to hospital straight away because they found out that he had leukemia. He's four years old. His Facebook update, or his dad's Facebook update, just recently, um, it said this, day 200 since he got cancer and being treated. So four-year-old, Down syndrome kid, right? tubes constantly, hospitalized constantly, chemo constantly, no hair, obviously. Day 200, 600 days to go. And it's just heartbreaking. Now here we've got a boy. We're not sure of his age, but the word in verse 18 is boy, so it's definitely under the age of puberty. And if you've got a son or you know someone who's got a child in that sort of condition, the grief, the fear, the worry. With a child like that, as it is with my friend, everything gets put on hold, all right? You quit your job, you become full-time carer for this kind of thing. And so Jesus comes down from the mountain to the world below, and he meets that. That kind of heartbreaking, intense suffering, and he meets it head on. He's just a child, just a boy. And often our deepest Hardest questions on suffering is that, right? I mean, adult suffering is bad enough, but children's suffering. 
When you read about the children who've died in the earthquake or the children who've died in the Ukraine war, that's worse, isn't it? And, and more than that, from this healing, we also know this wasn't just a physical thing. This is a boy, for reasons unknown to us, has a demon or has been demonized. He's suffering a deeper kind of suffering. It's physical, but yes, it's spiritual. Now, I know for our worldview, that seems a bit weird and wacky. Um, but in the Bible's worldview, and in fact, in a lot of places you can go today, I just had a chat with, some of you might know Jamin. He's one of the guys who is going through Bible college, which we hope to send also as a missionary. He just recently went to Indonesia. He'll tell you about some of the demon possessions that he came across just in this short-term trip. But the Bible's worldview is, of course, our problems are not just physical and mental. There is a spiritual world of darkness. There is a spiritual Lord who hates God and hates all of God's people, and he will do whatever he can to disrupt and enslave and cause suffering. Some of it will be indirect, because not all suffering is demonic, but some of it will be really direct, like in this case, and like Jesus met a lot. So Jesus comes down from the mountain. He shines with visible glory, but he comes down in order to have mercy on the mundane. See, remember, Peter wanted to stay up there. Jesus went up there in order to come down here. And by the way, that's not just in this episode, right? Isn't that the whole picture of the incarnation? You know what the incarnation means? God become a man. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Isn't that what the whole Christmas thing is about? God didn't stay up in heaven. God left heaven for the mundane. You see, Christianity is not a religion where the deity remains distant. Christianity is where God became a man. He walked in our shoes. He has mercy and compassion on our sons and daughters. He touches our diseases. He heals our hurt. He washes our feet. He eventually dies on the cross in our place. And so what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We have to follow in his steps. We're meant to come down from the mountaintops so that we can engage with the world, the world with all of its brokenness and hurt and pain. That's what it means to follow Jesus. But, and the next point, when we follow Jesus down the mountain in order to minister in his name, there's a way that we might fall short and fail, just like his disciples. So we read about failure. Verse 16, this man comes and he says, but I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now, why did they fail? Pick up verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, it's a pretty simple message. I think you get the point. Um, why did they fail? They failed to believe. Their faith was too little. Rather, they had faith, but it was too little. They could have healed. They could have driven this demon out. But because their faith failed, they couldn't do it. Now, what does Jesus mean, though, that their faith is too little? Because didn't he just say, well, you only need faith as small as a mustard seed. I don't know if you've seen a jar of seeded mustard. They're tiny seeds, okay? And so your faith is too little, but you only need little faith. Is that... Well, I think the illustration of a mustard seed probably shows you that the problem isn't the actual size, right, or the quantity of faith. It's actually about how adequate it is. It's whether it's poor faith impoverished faith or adequate faith. Um, for example, you can have a four-wheel drive, pretty big cars, 
But imagine you have a four-wheel drive with a rusty, grinding, pathetic engine that's done 300 kilometers, 300,000 kilometers, and never had an oil change, okay? See, the problem is not the literal size of the car. It's a big car. The problem is the condition of the car and the engine, yeah? You see, a much smaller car with a good engine could go further and better than the four-wheel drive with 300,000 Ks without an oil change. Because the size is not the issue. The condition of the car, the engine, is the issue. Um, that's the same thing with faith. Their faith is too small, not because the size is the issue, otherwise you wouldn't compare it with a mustard seed. It's because it's impoverished. It's broken. Because you only need a little bit of faith, as long as it's good faith, for it to succeed. So what is it that the disciples lacked? Well, Gospel of Mark, the other biography of Jesus, uh, in a parallel passage, will tell us that they failed because this kind, Jesus says, this deliverance, this healing, only comes through prayer or prayer and fasting. Right? That gives us an indication of why the disciples' faith were impoverished. They failed because their faith didn't drive them to rely on God. That's it. Right? They didn't rely on God for this healing. They didn't have a spirit of reliance and prayer. Instead, they relied on themselves. They got cocky, overconfident. Maybe they used Jesus' name as a good luck charm and it just didn't work. What they didn't do was they didn't pray. They didn't rely on God. See, faith is good if it's in the right object, the right person. And if that object is strong, then even small faith is strong enough. And the way that faith shows itself Real faith, good faith, even small faith, is prayer. How's your prayer life going? i got to admit, prayer is not the thing that I do well at. I mean, I pray, but often I pray when things have already reached the end or as a sign-off. How often do you pray, not because you've got more important things to do, um, but that prayer is actually the more important thing? Right? See, we do the same, don't we? We have overconfidence often in churches, in our programs, in our events, our knowledge, our money, our theological education, philosophy, apologetics, techniques, whatever. But do we pray? CG leaders, are you praying? Are you praying for your group? Youth leaders, do you pray for each of the youth by name? Sunday school teachers, do you pray? Because all the training in the world, all the programs in the world can't do anything if our faith isn't in the God who acts. And our faith only needs to be small, but it needs to be fed by prayer. Okay, almost done. So what did Jesus mean by faith to move mountains? Okay, if you have faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, go from here to there and it'll do that. Maybe it's just an exaggeration. It's just hyperbole. It's just for rhetorical effect. His point is nothing is impossible. Well, yeah, I think that's definitely the case. But I think there's more to that. Notice Jesus doesn't say um, faith enough to move any mountain, a mountain. He actually says faith to move this mountain. How many of you noticed that? This mountain. There is a specific mountain that Jesus is talking about. So which one? Well, the context helps us, doesn't it? We just read about a mountain, didn't we? The mountain that he just came down. The Mount of Transfiguration. And what was that mountain about? Remember, it revealed Jesus' glory, authority, power. 
He gave us a preview of his kingly majesty. And remember also, Peter wanted to keep them on the mountain. Why? Because he didn't want to lose all that glory. He didn't want to go back down the mountain. But they had to come down because it's the whole point. And then Jesus says here, there is a kind of faith that can move this mountain. You trying to put it together? Perhaps you got it. See, maybe Jesus is saying, there is a way to keep his glory revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we don't stay up there like like Peter wanted. With faith, you can take that mountain with you. You got that? With faith, you can take the glory with you, not localized, stuck on a mountain in a tabernacle slash temple. With the right kind of faith, the glory that Jesus revealed on the mountain will be with you wherever you are, wherever you want it to go. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have that. Because you have his presence with you through the Holy Spirit. So let me conclude. Jesus went up the mountain in order to what? Come down. I think we can have such a worldly and self-serving attitude to our lives, can't we? Speaking for myself. Back to the whole holidays and vacation blues. You know, perhaps my post-vacation blues come from a lack of Jesus-centeredness in my own life. Like, I want to live life on the mountains and the beaches and the New Zealands. I feel like the mundane is an interruption. And I wonder if you, like, the, like honestly, I sometimes talk to people and, and our lives are just between the next holiday. We're just talking about, oh, I can't wait to get the next holiday. because that's And then after that holiday, I'll feel blue, but I've got another one coming up. Is that what your life is? It's for the next holiday, for the next overseas trip, or in a spiritual term, for the next spiritual high, whatever that is. But that's not a Jesus-shaped life, is it? What is a Jesus-shaped life? A Jesus-shaped life, things like this. Until I die or Jesus returns, I actually live for the mundane. I live for the world. You and I have one life, just one, one to live. And that is to give and give and give and give for the sake of this broken and hurting world that Jesus has put us in. To minister in his name. And the mountaintops, whether it's a holiday or spiritual mountaintops, they're not an end in themselves, are they? We have a dynamic when we have Sunday services. You'll get this right at the end. We have a Sunday service, but at the end, really important, the service leader will come up and he will send us out with a blessing. The whole point is we gather, not for a sake of just staying here, we gather in order to scatter. That's the whole dynamic of the Christian life. We gather so that our faith may be topped up. We go on a mountaintop so that our faith is topped. You have a holiday so that you can be topped up in order that you might go back into the world. And remember, you only need faith as small as a mustard seed. And you can take the glory of the mountaintop wherever you go, in your schools, in your universities, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your families. Don't they need to know the glory of Jesus? How's it going to come? Through you. Oh, how can it come through me? I'm so little. Ah, you don't need big faith, do you? It only needs to be as small as a mustard seed.
And the presence of God will be with you. And people will experience the glory of Jesus wherever you go. Are you ready for that? Let's pray. Let's get ready to sing. Lord Jesus, we pray that we might be, even today, filled with your glory, experiencing your presence, hearing your word, rejoicing in gathering, not for our own sake, but in order that we might scatter into the world so broken, so needy. This week, show us where we can be your hands and feet and your eyes and your lips. Amen.